Now, I've been assigned to teach Romans 10 tonight, and I've titled my message, Israel's Past and Present Rejection, and God's Universal Offer of Salvation by Grace. So let me invite you to open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now how many of you have heard these verses at the close of a church service inviting people to come forward and say the sinner's prayer and be saved? And if you were to ask the average person in the pew or pulpit, do you know the context of Romans 10, 9, and 10? They look at you like a deer in the headlights. Do you know what Revelation 3.20, Matthew 24.13, John 15.6, and Romans 10, 9, and 10 all have in common? They are normally wrenched out of their context and totally misunderstood and misused by the evangelist or preacher who should be playing the Beatles in the background as he twists and shouts because he's done chubby checker hermeneutics. Let's twist again like we did last summer. I mean last sermon. You know, Romans 10, 9, and 10 has been called by one Bible teacher the most abused passage in the Bible. And it's been used to support the evangelistic line. Salvation is as simple as A, B, C. Very common down south, probably in other places. First, you need to A, admit you're a sinner. Next, you need to B, believe in Jesus Christ. And then lastly, you need to C, confess or call upon him in prayer. It's as simple as A, B, C. Easy as one, two, three. You get it. You know the era I grew up in. <laughs> but is that what Paul and Silas told the Philippian jailer? What must I do to be saved? A, B, C. No. Instead, he said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Notice, what must of necessity I do to be saved? And there was only one answer. You understood as the subject, believe is the transitive verb, the Lord Jesus Christ is the object. To believe, postul, aorist, active imperative, understands that Paul and Silas believed that the jailer could believe. They didn't say, well, if you happen to find the gift of faith falling over you, no, no, no. You make a choice, active voice, to believe. This is imperative because apart from that, you cannot be saved. Your object of faith is a P resting upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved, future passive indicative. It is guaranteed as a result of believing God will save you. And that is a fact you can bring to the bank. Or can you even bring it to the bank anymore? Now I say all of that because so often we're hearing the wrong explanation of how to be saved. When will the evangelical church get the evangel right? 
when will the fundamental churches finally get the most fundamental issue right, the gospel? You've all heard of the Romans road, right? Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Romans 5.8, but God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then they jump five chapters to Romans 10, 9, and 10. Why don't you give them a verse that's in the context of justification, Romans 3, 20 through chapter 5, verse 11, like chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why do they jump so far into a different context? And I can't help but think, not only are they theologically confused, but you know, the flesh by nature wants to do something. And Romans 10, 9, and 10, at first glance, looks like there's something more than believing in order to be saved. I propose to you what I heard on a message one day. We need to repave the Romans road. And Paul began the book of Romans with those famous words, I am a debtor, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are at Rome also, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And you know what's really amazing about that? Who is he going to, who is he writing this letter to? Those in Rome. And what was Rome known for? Power. And he says, if you want to see power, I'll tell you where there's power. It's in the gospel message because the gospel alone can save a lost sinner from a hell they deserve to a heaven they don't. And there's nothing else that can do that. Is that our passion? Is that our perspective? And if it is, may we learn in humility and allow the Holy Spirit to correct any incorrect presentations of the gospel. As many people are sincere in their preaching, but too often they're sincerely inaccurate or wrong. So let's begin reading tonight in Romans chapter 9. And I'm going to overlap a little bit with Dr. Cohn as a bridge to chapter 10. Verse, chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion, a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Now you've heard that a text without a context is a pretext. So what is the general context of Romans? Again, Pastor Tom Stiegel went over this in the first session of this conference. It's all about the righteousness of God. 
First, it starts with condemnation to underscore the need. Then it talks about justification, sanctification, glorification, and then God's righteousness revealed through Israel. And then beginning in chapter 12, God's righteousness revealed through the church. When you think of the specific context of Romans 9 through 11, first of all, Romans 9 is about Israel's past national election by God's sovereignty to be his chosen earthly people and the human channel by which the Messiah would come. Chapter 10 will be about Israel's present volitional rejection through unbelief of the gospel of grace and yet God's ongoing universal offer of salvation. And then Romans 11 will deal with Israel's future national salvation and his fulfillment of God's covenantal promises to his glory. So, as we begin chapter 9, verse 30, we're going to see the assessment of why the Gentiles succeeded and Israel failed in the past to attain the righteousness of God. The subject of justification before God is not a new topic in Romans. It's what Romans 3, 21 through 5, 11 was previously about. But now Paul explains to us what went wrong when Jesus Christ came the first time to seek and to save that which was lost and to offer the long-promised kingdom on earth to Israel. We begin again in verse 30 by observing the reality of the contrast. What shall we say then? The Gentiles, and please note that word. As you can see, the word Gentiles is used in many places throughout the book of Romans. It's an extensive topic in Romans. And he's contrasting the Gentiles and Israel here. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness. And let me point out that word did not pursue means to willfully and actively pursue or seek. You see, the Gentiles were not seeking righteousness. And again, through Romans, the righteousness of God is dealing with justification before God, introduced in chapter 1, verse 17. But while they weren't pursuing it, they have attained to righteousness. That word attained is katalambano. It means to receive to yourself so as to lay hold of something to attain something, to possess something. What is it they possess? Righteousness, which by the way, that term is found 12 times here in chapter 9, verse 30, through chapter 10, verse 10. The heavy emphasis of the passage. And how did they attain this righteousness? Even the righteousness of, ek, out of, or from, faith. And that word faith is pistis, it's simply the noun form of the verb, pistuo. And thus these Gentiles obtained righteousness by faith. Like Abraham, like Rahab, like the Ninevites, like the Roman centurion, Matthew 8, like the Syrophoenician woman in Mark 7, like the Philippian jailer in Acts 16. They were not pursuing the righteousness of God by the law, but they still attained righteousness. How and why? By simple faith in the Lord, plus nothing. Now watch the contrast with these Gentiles 
of these Gentiles with the Jews. But in contrast to the Gentiles, Israel. And notice he uses that national term referring to them as a collective unit of many individuals. But Israel, who were pursuing the law of the word ice there probably should be better translated for righteousness. Now, if you notice closely, the Gentiles were not pursuing righteousness where the Israelites were pursuing the law for righteousness. Big difference. And they have not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Why did Israel not achieve the righteousness of God? Well, it's because God ordained some to eternal life and others to damnation before they were born, right? Wrong. Well, because God did not regenerate them and give them the gift of faith, but still condemned them for their unbelief, right? Wrong. Then why? The answer is found in the very next verse. As we see three reasons why Israel failed. Reason number one is because they did not seek it by faith. They as a nation did not seek it by faith, though some did. Remember John 1, 11 and 12? He came unto his own, but his own people did not receive him, but as many as received him to them. Gave he the right or authority to be called children of God, even to them that believe on his name. I can still remember where I was sitting on my office when I got the phone call a few years ago from a man who was involved in fair evangelism. He was a Baptist, and somebody at a fair gave him my book on seven reasons not to ask Jesus in your heart. And in doing so, he says, you know, I've read this book, and I just want to ask you some questions. If I get this correct, are you saying that when you... You receive Christ when you believe. And I said, well, that's what the verse says. And he says, well, we think usually believing is one thing, receiving is another. You have to believe and then you have to receive by calling or praying. But what you're saying here is there's only one condition. I said, yes. And we had this wonderful conversation and he said he would never tell people to do that again. Because that's not what the Bible says. Why did Israel fail? Because they did not seek it by faith, number two. But in contrast, as it were, they sought it by the works of the law. And you see, that work approach is inconsistent with faith, because Romans 4, 5 says, but to him who does not work but believes, on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. And you see that works approach is inconsistent with grace, for it's of grace and it's not of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. If it's of work, it's not of grace. Therefore, otherwise, work is no more work. It can't be both. If it's works, it's merited. If it's grace, it's unmerited. They do not go together. That's why Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 for by grace you have been saved through faith. What's consistent with grace is faith, because faith is a non-meritorious response of the volition to believe what God has said. 
Reason number three that Israel failed, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. The word speaks of an obstacle that one trips over. Last Sunday at church, Jack Henke, and some of you know Jack, was coming in down the center aisle, and he, next thing I hear is, Gaboomph! And I look, and he's laying on the floor. And after I was sure he was okay, I said, Now, Jack, that was the untriumphal entry. <laughs> they stumbled at that stumbling stone. But it wasn't because of a lack of evidence. For the Lord Jesus Christ, the rightful Messiah, had come to their land and demonstrated by his miracles, by his teaching, by his compassion, by his fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, that he was nothing less than the long-awaited seed of the woman, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world, the stone of Daniel 2, who would one day destroy all the kingdoms of the earth and set up his everlasting kingdom of righteousness. But they stumbled at the stumbling stone. And what or who was that stone? As it is written, Behold, I, God, lay in Zion, or Jerusalem, a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever, whether Jew or Gentile, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. The word believes, again, is the only response necessary for justification as it's consistent with grace. And if you will notice again, you're going to see one active voice verb after another in the passage as one has to decide who they're going to trust. And God is holding Israel accountable for their unbelief. To believe on, there it is, a P again, just like in Acts 16.31. And it's on him, it's a person, the promised Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. As Dr. Cohen pointed out, 1 Peter 2.8, he's the stone of stumbling. He's the rock of offense. And whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. They'll never be disappointed because he always keeps his word. Whoever believes on him, what a refreshing word. Amidst the confusion of Calvinism with its unconditional election and limited atonement. Do you know what whoever means? Whoever. You know what on means? Resting on. You know who him is? The Lord Jesus Christ. And once you put your faith in him, he will not only save you, you will never be disappointed for faith in the Lord is never misplaced faith. Now, in light of what we've seen, since I'm a pastor, I'm going to give you some applications. Number one, Romans 9 emphasizes the sovereignty of God in Israel's past national election, while Romans 9.30 through 10.21 will emphasize the human responsibility and volitional choices of man. In Israel's past and present rejection, keep both eyes open when reading the scriptures. Again, you've got to keep both eyes open. The Calvinist tends to close one eye and see sovereignty, sovereignty, sovereignty. 
The Arminian sees human responsibility, human responsibility, human responsibility. Keep them both open. And normally in the same passage, you'll see both. In Ephesians 1, you'll see you're chosen in him. And then later in chapter 1:13, in Christ you also trusted. After you heard the word of truth. In 1 Peter 1, 2, you're going to see elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Later in chapter 1, verse 4, after he wrote that these believers had been born again, he adds, to an inheritance, incorruptible and undefiled, that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith. Notice, keep both eyes open. And so we see this balance. And I do love what Spurgeon said on this, even though he was a Calvinist. But he didn't have any choice in the matter, right? He said, when people say to me, how do you reconcile the sovereignty of God and human responsibility? My response is, you don't need to reconcile friends. I like it. Application number two, this section will make it clear that God responds to your responses to his revealed truths, as does the rest of Romans, beginning in Romans 1, 18 through 32, so that we are without excuse. Now, he responds to your responses to his revealed truths. Now, he sets the plan. He's sovereign. He sets up the terms. But within those terms, he gives you an opportunity to respond. You know why? Because he's a relational God. And as a result, he wants to have a relationship with us. And when you respond positively, here's the result. You respond negatively, here's the result. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Application number three, that God's plan of salvation through imputed righteousness has always been by grace through faith alone in the Lord alone, never by good works or the works of the law. And Paul uses both Abraham and David in Romans 4 to illustrate justification is by faith alone apart from works and law and ritual. And I say that because one of the accusations that's leveled against dispensationalists is that we teach two ways of salvation. In the Old Testament, people are saved by keeping the law of Moses. Not true, never true, impossible. In the New Testament, people are saved by faith alone in the Lord alone. The fact is, the second was true always, never anything different. Now, let me do an aside for a moment that I found very interesting as I was working through these passages exegetically about Paul's use of the Old Testament in Romans. Because already you saw Dr. Cohn, you saw before him Dr. Brummett, and you saw Dr. Siegel. They're all quoting verses that Paul was quoting, and they were showing the Old Testament references. Do you know that Paul quotes the Old Testament in Romans with also many allusions in at least 84 verses. Now, it depends on how you count them because sometimes a quote could be in two different places in the Old Testament. Sometimes it's an allusion. Sometimes people think it's a quote. So there's some variation there. But in, in the introduction, he only quotes one verse. Habakkuk 2.4, the just shall live by faith. In his condemnation section, he, 
quotes 13 verses, especially in Romans 3, 10 through 18, where he quotes one verse after another. Does the Old Testament teach about condemnation? Absolutely. In the justification section, he only quotes six verses. By the way, do you know what they are? Genesis 15, 6. Quotes it a second time, Genesis 15, 6. Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, and two other times. Why so few verses in the Old Testament on personal justification? Because that's not the thrust of the Old Testament. The thrust of the Old Testament is a national salvation for Israel. Very few verses on personal justification in the Old Testament for Paul to draw from. And then we have the sanctification passage, and there's only one time he quotes in Romans 7, 7, I would not have known lust unless the Lord said thou shalt not covet. Why doesn't he quote Old Testament verses in the sanctification passage? Because it's sanctification by grace, not law. There was no mention of your position in Christ, the indwelling of the Spirit, all that. No way. So there's no quotations. And then in the scientific glorification passage, he only quotes one. May I give a suggestion why? Because glorification for church-age believers is definitely different than Old Testament saints, though ultimately we will both enjoy the kingdom in the end of the day. And then the dispensation section here, he quotes 43 times. Why so many? Because he's dealing with Israel. And then in the application section, he quotes the Old Testament 19 times. Why? Because there are some transdispensational principles, or he's contrasting law versus grace. Did you know there are more quotations in Romans than in any other New Testament book? And we're seeing a lot of them, obviously, in this section. Now, after we've looked at the assessment of why the Gentiles succeeded and Israel failed in the past to attain the righteousness of God, we now see the aspiration and prayer by Paul for Israel's still available salvation. And beginning in verse 1, we now move from the assessment to the aspiration. And what does he say, verse 1? Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Now he calls them brethren, because that includes both Jews and Gentiles, who have become one in the body of Christ living in Rome. He says, my heart's desire, my heart's longing, my heart's aspiration. And this is reflected also in prayer. And who do I pray to? The person who can do something about it, God. And who do I pray for? Who pair on behalf of Israel. And again, he uses the corporate name here. And what do you pray for? Is that they, Israel, may be saved. And kind of interesting because maybe saved looks like a verb in the translation, but in the Greek, it's isoteria. It's literally for salvation. And while Jesus Christ's offer to set up the kingdom was taken off the table temporarily after the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and then he professes, I will build my church, his offer of personal salvation for lost sinners remains. As he died for all and all of their sins, past, present, and future, and rose again. 
And so this is his longing. You know what I think his longing was? My heart's desire. He was longing for the kingdom. He was longing for the Lord Jesus Christ to come, and in doing so, he knows soon after there would be the tribulation, and the Lord would return, and the kingdom would be set up. And he's also praying for Israel that they would be saved. Question, is that personal salvation, or is that national salvation? I propose to you it is both. You cannot have the one without the other. Though for Jews to be saved and justified at that present time would not usher in the kingdom until the church has been built. That repentance, national repentance, and turning to the Lord in faith will happen, we know, at the end of the tribulation period. By way of application, we see from the example of Paul the validity of persistent prayer for the salvation of others, even for those who have previously rejected the message. Do you pray for the salvation of others? I do. Do you pray and ask God for open doors to give boldness, to make the gospel clear as we ought, and so forth. And in God's sovereign plan, he builds into it our prayers, and they make a difference as the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. You know, the story is told about a Calvinistic church on one side of town, an evangelistic church on another side of town. And as a result, the evangelistic church, there were a lot of people getting saved. And somebody over at the Calvinist church said, isn't it funny how God's electing a lot more people over there than over here? <laughs> Again, if I could quote Spurgeon favorably, you can always quote him when they're dead. God's Savior elect and then elect a bunch more. <laughs> that is good. I love the passion. And you know, too often Bible churches don't have the passion they should, but they do get the gospel right. And then Baptist churches, they have the passion, and too often they get the gospel wrong. You know, in my witnessing in Georgia, and it's mostly among Baptists and some Pentecostals, in fact, in the city of Warner Robins, 75,000 people, do you know how many Catholic churches there are? One. A lot different than Minnesota. So you ask them, are you a person of faith? Oh, yes, I am. So do you know for sure you're going to heaven? A lot of times they'll say, yes, I do. I said, what are you, 100%? Some say 70. Some say you can't know. I said, well, why should Jesus Christ let you into heaven? Because not everyone gets in, right? Right. So why should he let you in? 20% or less include Jesus Christ in the answer. What a shame. And these are people that would tell you they have a high regard for the Bible. But they're not hearing it clearly. They're mixing justification and sanctification. They're adding conditions to the gospel. And so forth and so forth. But don't give up on people. God is still working. Second application, we observe that the answer to man's greatest need is not Christian activism, but evangelism. As people needed to be saved, and then believers need to become established in the faith by a sound grace doctrine and encouraged or exhorted through mutual fellowship. And that's exactly why Paul said he wanted to come to Rome. 
And I'll tell you, the Romans 8.28, when Paul said, I wanted to come to Rome many times, but I was hindered. Do you know the Romans 8.28 of that was? He wrote the book of Romans. Praise the Lord. Had he gone to Rome first, we'd have a shorter version for sure. Like he did with the churches that he visited previously. See, we got to remember, let's keep the main thing the main thing. Thirdly, Paul directly connects the righteousness of God or justification and salvation together. We have to remember, in this passage, justification and salvation are wedded closely together. And we see this especially here in the analysis and present rejection of the righteousness of God with Israel in verses 2 through 4. First we see the reasons for Israel's need for salvation. Paul, why are you praying for their salvation? Well, I'll tell you why. Verse 2, for I bear them, the Israelites, witness that they have presently a zeal for God. Like Paul previously did. If you read Acts 22, 1 through 3, Galatians 1, 13 and 14, or 1 Timothy 1, 13, you'll see this guy was zealous. Zealous. But not according to knowledge. The word according, kata, means according to the norms and standards. To knowledge. Knowledge of what? Scriptural knowledge of the righteousness of God through the gospel by faith alone in Christ alone. They have zeal, but it's not in keeping with what the Bible has to say is necessary to enter into the presence of God. Really, can you explain further? Yes, for they, the Israelites, being ignorant of God's righteousness. And I just want to point something out here. Not only is this word ignorant in the active voice, I think the net Bible has it right. It's not passive for they being ignorant. It's more they ignoring. They willingly ignoring the truth they had. And Paul is going to make that very clear by the time chapter 10 is over. For they were ignoring God's righteousness and they seeking zealously, act of voice again, in an attempt to establish their own righteousness. They have not submitted to the righteousness of God. You see, ignorance and arrogance results in spiritual disaster. You can find people are very zealous for their religion, but if it's not true to the word of God, it's misguided zeal that actually blinds them. For the more self-righteous they become, the more they fail to see their need of the grace of God. Notice own righteousness in contrast to the righteousness of God. By way of application, let me point out the fact that zeal without scriptural knowledge of God's plan of grace can be disastrous. It resulted in crucifying Jesus Christ, along with many Jews and Gentiles then and now, rejecting God's offer of his righteousness by faith alone, and even persecuting Christians. What will he say in chapter 11? They are enemies for the gospel's sake, though they're beloved for the Father's sake. 
And so religious zeal can actually become used by Satan to thwart the gospel. And that's why, again, we always must go back to what does the word of God say? Furthermore, the difference between you possessing your own righteousness versus God's righteousness in Christ is the difference between heaven and hell. You know why the righteousness of God has to be revealed according to Romans 1.17? Because we don't know how to think outside our own righteousness. And you know what our own righteousness is like? Isaiah 64.6? Like filthy rags and Romans, excuse me, Philippians 3, like dung. Can you imagine standing before the Lord? Why should I let you in? Well, I've got some filthy rags and dung here. Oh, I'm impressed. Come on in, right? Eh, wrong answer. And this is, though he's talking about the Jews, isn't this the way it always is in religion? And that's why religion, instead of being a friend to true Christianity, is actually a meritorious satanic foe and counterfeit that blinds people from the true gospel of grace. Do you know who the most religious person in the universe is? Satan himself. He wants worship. He's behind false religion. And that is why we read, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded. Who's the God of this age? Satan. How, what does he use to blind people? First and foremost, religion. A meritorious approach to salvation who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. And so we see the reasons for Israel's need for salvation. We see why Paul is praying. And now we see the real issues in salvation in verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. The focus of the gospel is Christ. And he is the purpose or termination, depending on how you understand this, of the law for righteousness. To who? To everyone who believes. And again, notice the active voice. But this is a participle. And I say this because sometimes I have seen Calvinists, even Daniel Wallace, who I usually check out anyhow, because he says a lot of good things, but he misunderstands the present participle as requiring ongoing faith. When it's simply descriptive. By the way, how many times do you have to be murder before you're a murderer? How many times do you have to believe before you're a believer? <laughs> Don't understand the present participle is requiring ongoing faith. You see, the Bible talks about justification in the terms of a birth, a point in time, non-repeatable event. It's like the receiving of a gift by faith again in Jesus Christ. This does not require ongoing faith, but to have believed the gospel. But notice again, one condition required only. By way of application, you can always tell the true gospel versus a false gospel by looking where the spotlight is shining, either on Christ alone or you. You've seen this illustration before, but you see up there all these Confusing invitations we're hearing. If you look at every one of them, do you know something that's true of every one of them? 
They're wrong. Every one of them. Because you see, what is the gospel all about? It's about how Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And he was buried. And he rose again the third day according to the scripture. And so as we think of the spotlight, in fact, I can still remember the first time I used this in Nicaragua. Brett Nazareth was with me. And we didn't have a flashlight. We had one of these big lights. What do you call those, Bert? Spotlights. And we were shining on Jimmy. I remember this poor guy. And we say, is your faith over here? Is it on yourself? And we put it on Jimmy. And after a while, Jimmy's like. <laughs> and you see, this is what they do. Is they'll, they'll, they might mention Jesus Christ, but then inevitably they go right back here, don't they? Jesus Christ died for your sins, so now you need to repent of your sins. No. Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose again, so ask him into your heart. Notice they're taking again the spotlight off of Christ. What must I do to be saved? You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Application number two. When the spotlight is on Jesus Christ and his finished work, it will be salvation by faith alone. But when it's on you, it will include works to either obtain it, maintain it, or to prove it. Now, I'm not saying faith can't reflect, be reflected by works, but when works are demanded to prove you have true faith, you have to then admit, in order to go to heaven, you have to have works. And that is not what the Bible teaches. Now, how do preachers front load or back load the gospel in our day? Well, they front load it with faith in Christ plus conditions to be saved. How do they backload it with requirements of ongoing faithfulness, holiness, and fruitfulness? If you are really saved, like Dr. John MacArthur's book on Save Without a Doubt, he gives you 11 tests from the book of 1 John, supposedly, to find out if you're really saved. And if you're honest with yourself, by the time you're done reading this list, you'll never know you're saved. Because you know what happened? You just took the spotlight off Jesus Christ and the promises of God, and he put it on your walk. And your works. Are you going to find assurance there? Never. Unless you're so arrogant you could comb your hair with a rake. <laughs> I've always said this book should be retitled Saved? Question marks with many doubts. <laughs> These things I have written to you. Who's you? Who believe? Believe in who? In the name of the Son of God, so that you may K-N-O-W know that you have as a present possession eternal life and dear believers, any system of theology that does not arrive at you having an absolute assurance of eternal life, whether it's Arminianism who thinks you can lose it if you don't persevere, or Calvinism who thinks you never had it if you don't persevere to the end. If it doesn't lead you to absolute assurance, it is a wrong system. So the focus of the gospel is not on a church. It is not on a ritual. It is not on an experience. It is not on a behavior. It's not anything you do for God. It's on what Christ has done for you. And that's why it's interesting, in the analogies of faith in John's writing, faith is as simple as the receiving of a gift 
One look at a pole, taking one drink of water, eating a piece of bread, the believing of a record or testimony. Now what is really amazing right here, friends, is even though the Jews rejected their Messiah through unbelief and trust in the, their efforts to keep the law, God is still willing to save. And now in verses 5 through 8, we see the availability and message of the righteousness of God con contrasted. We, first of all, we see the religious legal message, verse 5, for Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. And the key word there is does. It's quoting Leviticus 18.5. And if you know Galatians 3, 10 through 12, you know that those who depend on the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that continues not in all things written in the book of the law to do them. 100% obedience, 100% of the time to 100% of the law. Anyone be able to do that? No. And so he goes on to say, the law is not of faith. But the just shall live by faith. The law was never designed, friends, to be a ladder, but a scale. A mirror and a rule of life and this false works approach to God is found in the teachings of all religions. It was designed to be like when you go into that house of mirrors and you keep seeing yourself and you know what you keep seeing? Your sin in light of the righteousness of God. And that was designed to drive you to Christ to find salvation by faith alone in him. And that's the grace-faith message and its availability. We read in verse 6, but in contrast to the law, the righteousness of faith in Christ, based on the scriptures, also, by the way, written by Moses, speaks in this way. Really, what does it say? Quoting here from Deuteronomy chapter 30, do not say in your hearts, alluding to Deuteronomy 9.4, who will ascend into heaven in context to find out God's will or God's command, quoting Deuteronomy 30 verse 12, that is to bring Christ down from above. This is Paul's interpretation or should application of this, underscoring his deity and his incarnation. Or, do not say in your heart, who will descend into the abyss? In other words, you don't need to plumb the depths of the deepest sea or the netherworld to find God's will. Quoting Deuteronomy 30, verse 13, that is to bring Christ up from the dead, underscoring his death and resurrection, which were already complete and accepted by God. You see, Paul's point, like Moses, was the message God has given regarding his will related to the gospel is available and it is accessible. But notice carefully that Paul took the liberty to change in his quotation the word commandment or law and in that in its place he put Christ. Because justification isn't about the law, it's about Christ. In fact, if you look at Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 through 14, you will see the word do, do, do. Isn't that the way of religion? But no mention of do in Romans 10, 6 through 7, but instead it's been replaced by what Christ 
has already done. Verse 8, but what does it, the message of faith, say? Quoting Deuteronomy 30, verse 14. The word, and the word is rima here, speaking of specific spoken message, is presently near you. Really, how near? Well, it's in your mouth to be able to speak of it, and it's in your heart to be able to believe it. This is a little Jewish idiom. That is the word arima of faith, faith in Christ alone, which we caruso, we preach as a herald who is sent with a message. We don't make the message, we proclaim the message we were sent with. In addition, again, he changed that you may do it here with the word of faith. And this brings us now to Romans 10, 9 and 10, where we see the applications personally. Due to the present availability of the righteousness of God by faith, alone in Christ alone is proclaimed in the gospel. Remember, it's near you. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart. So now in verse 9, we begin with the confession of faith. That, continuing Paul's thought from verses 5 through 8, if, this is a third class condition, if you might or might not. By the way, it's an invitation to man's volition again. You know, God respects man's volition. That if you, and I want you to notice the word you here is individual. He's not speaking to the whole of the nation. He's speaking to individuals, Jew or Gentile, but especially the Jew in this context. That if you confess, and again, this is in the active voice, and it's singular, of homologeo, which means to speak the same thing, to acknowledge or agree that something is true or factual, according to Bauer, R. Gingrich, and Danker. In this context, to agree with God about the person and finished work of Jesus Christ and the righteousness of God by faith alone in the gospel. That if you confess with your mouth, why does he say with your mouth? Since the word of faith is where? In your mouth. He just told us that in verse 8. But what is the content of this verbal confession? That if you will confess with your mouth that the Lord Jesus, that Jesus is Lord, seems to be the best way to understand this grammatically. And the word Lord is, would be the Old Testament term, would be Yahweh. The New Testament term here is Lord. It's going to be in actually in verse 13, whosoever shall call the name of the Lord, Yahweh, in Joel, Kyrios, in Romans, shall be saved. Now what does Jesus mean? Yeshua. What does it mean? Yeshua means Yahweh saves. And the Yahweh that saves is Lord, he's deity, he is God. And you see, this was an early Christian confession that Jesus is Lord. Remember that 
Jesus Yeshua means Yahweh saves and was his designated earthly name by God as communicated to Joseph by Gabriel in Matthew 1.21. How fitting God in sinless human flesh came to save. But to confess Jesus Christ is or as the Lord is very difficult for both Jews and Gentiles. You see, it's difficult to confess. You mean Jesus is Lord? Well, there's only one Savior according to Isaiah 43, and if he's the Savior, then we really blew it. And isn't that what Peter tells them in Acts chapter 2? Where he also quotes, by the way, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It was difficult for Gentiles because, you know, in many of the people groups, they believed their emperor was Lord. So to say that Jesus is Lord it was not just, you know, you can go up to anyone and give them 10 bucks and say, if you say, Jesus, Lord, I'll give this to you. Jesus, Lord, okay, here we go. No, this is really a reflection of what they believe in their heart, as we'll see in a moment. So we see the confession of faith followed by the condition of faith in verse 9. And if you believe, again, active voice, singular in nature again, if you believe in your heart, why? Because remember, the word is where? It's in your heart. That God, in reference to the Father, has raised him from the, literally, out from the dead ones. And for God the Father to raise Jesus Christ is evidence of God's propitiation, satisfactory acceptance of the payment, and it's also proof, according to Romans 1, verses 3 and 4, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you, singular, not in reference to the whole nation, but in reference to individuals, will be saved. And this is a future passive indicative, just like Acts 16, 31, which we saw earlier. So we've seen the confession of faith. We've seen the condition of faith. Now we see three clarifications. Clarification number one is regarding the order of verse 9. Because he started with the mouth and moved to the heart, but the logical order is you start with the heart and you move to the mouth. Four gives us the correct order. With the heart one believes... Onto righteousness. And again, in the context, righteousness is justification before God, as found throughout the chapter. And with the mouth, confession, homologeo here again, and this confession is prompted or preceded by the believing in one's heart is made onto salvation. Now, the question is which salvation? First, second, third, or national? And I'll explain in a moment the conviction I have on this. But does this passage require one, two, or three conditions for salvation? I feel like an auctioneer up here. Who give me belief? Who give me confess? Who give me call? Which one is it? Well, let's compare some scripture with scripture for a moment. 
In the immediate context of Romans 9, 30 through 10, 10, the only condition of salvation and righteousness is simply to what? Believe in Jesus Christ alone. He said it in 932, 933, 1014, 610, 1019, 1010, 1012, 1013, 1017. Have I said it with Romans 4 making it clear that justification is always by faith in Christ alone apart from works, law, and ritual. Are all these verses that said it was just by faith incomplete? Because they forgot to mention confessing with your mouth. And they didn't mention calling. Third comparison of Scripture with Scripture. In the context of the New Testament, let's go even bigger. The only condition for salvation justification is faith alone in Christ alone. Found some 150 times. I've heard some say at least 200 times. Are all these verses incomplete? Because they did not include confess or call. Fourthly, in the context of the Bible, let's go even bigger. There's only one condition to possess or have imputed righteousness by God, namely faith alone in Christ alone. And as Christopher Cohen pointed out, Genesis 15, 6 is the first verse that tells us how these persons were declared righteous. So why is confession mentioned in verses 9 and 10? Well, number one, it's to correspond with Paul quoting Deuteronomy 30, verse 14. It's in your mouth and in your heart. So working off that, he just starts with the mouth and then works to the heart. Secondly, because the confession of one's mouth reveals or gives evidence of what a person believes in one's heart. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ made that clear in Matthew 12 when he says, Brood of vipers, who can, how can you being evil speak good things for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks? And then verse 37, for by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. And the context is Israel's rejection of their Messiah. Their heart was revealed by what they said. Daniel Wallace in Greek Grammar Beyond the Basics says, one way to look at this text is to consider the confession with the mouth as the ground or evidence upon which the inference you shall be saved is based. But it is not the cause. The cause is in the second part of the condition, if you believe in your heart. It is not necessary to treat each protestant as bearing the same relationship to the apotheosis. In fact, I am convinced, along with our great theologian, Brad Mastin, in his commentary, that there's a chiastic construction here. If you confess with your mouth, A, B, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, C, you will be saved, now we're back to corresponding with B, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and now we're back corresponding with A, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. If the confession of the mouth in the beginning was the reflection of the heart, why would not the confession with the mouth at the end be a reflection of the heart again? And so the chiasm indicates that if the confession of verse 9 is the result or evidence of one's belief, so also the confession of verse 10 is the result or evidence of one's salvation. 
So that's what I take it. Now, some people take this to be national. The problem I have with it, these are all singular verbs. And it's reinforced in the very next verse as well. Furthermore, consider the following verses about individuals who trusted in Jesus Christ, but did not confess him. Like Nicodemus, at least initially. Or uh, here's one, John 12, 42 and 43. Nevertheless, when even among the rulers, many believed in him. What does that mean in the book of John? They have eternal life. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him. Lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Were they saved? Absolutely. They're not the first believers that were afraid to confess Christ. I'm sure you probably have at times held back as well. But they were saved. So there's a clarification in the order. Secondly, there's a clarification in the scripture. Verse 11, and I'm going to cover a little bit what Kurt will go over tomorrow, and I hope he gets it right. <laughs> For the scripture, quoting Isaiah 28, 16, says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Have you seen that verse before? It was quoted at the end of chapter 9. And notice the emphasis is on whoever believes. Thirdly, there's a clarification in its availability, for there is no distinction, difference, separation on this matter between Jew and Greek. Notice the universal offer. For the same Lord over all, Jew and Greek, is rich to all, Jew and Greek, who call upon him, and this word call upon is to call in dependence upon someone, oftentimes a deity for divine assistance. But notice the emphasis is on whoever calls. Whoever is the emphasis upon him. We've seen, lastly, the calling. Paul's usage of Joel 2.32 and Romans 10.13. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord, in the Hebrew text, this was Yahweh, shall be saved. Now in the original context, this was referring to national salvation for Israel at the end of the tribulation in light of the day of the Lord, calling upon him to come to their aid. And yet the emphasis here seems to be on the whosoever. But as Tom Stiegel explains it, lurking in the back of Paul's mind always was personal salvation will ultimately lead to national salvation. Though if a million Jews got saved tomorrow, do you know the kingdom would still not come? Because we're in the church age yet. And so Paul shifts back to Israel now in verse 14, I believe. How then shall they? When's the last time he used they? Back in verses three, 2 and 3 in reference to the nation. 
How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? What's very clear about this? The calling is preceded by the believing, just like Romans 10, 9 and 10. Now let me just say this, and I'm just about done. I'm just going to give you something to think about. And the more I've thought about it, the more I'm coming to this conclusion. We know from the Bible that the nation of Israel during the tribulation period will finally turn in faith to Jesus Christ. Because of their faith in him, they will confess and they will call. In this very order, though I think he's referring to the present time right now, and when they repent slash believe in him, I think there's a good possibility that they're going to be saying Isaiah 53. If you look at Isaiah 53 closely, verses 1, 2, and 3 are all future tense. Starting in verse 4 and following, it's all past. What does verse 4 say? For we did esteem him, stricken, we believed he was smitten by God. We believed he was afflicted by God. But in contrast, he was wounded. For our transgressions. He was bruised or crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. That will be the ultimate confession. And do you know how that chapter ends? By this, my servant will justify many. And that's what's going to happen. And because they turned in faith to Jesus Christ, they're going to call upon him to come and deliver him, them, and he will. Amazing. So some closing applications. Number one, regarding correct exegesis. Let's allow the text and not our theology to determine meaning and context while being gracious with interpretative differences within doctrinal correctness. You know, this is a tough passage. I spent more hours studying this passage than any passage in the last three decades. And I had time down in Georgia to do this. And you know, you may have some differing views on this. And as long as they're within doctrinal correctness, this is where you have to be gracious. But this is where I'm landing right now on it. When it comes to clarity in our gospel presentation, let's preach the gospel in simplicity and clarity. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and his finished work alone without adding any works to it, which nullifies the message of grace through faith alone in Christ alone. Regarding biblical balance about God's sovereignty and human responsibility, let's keep both eyes open so as to see both God's part, his plan, his grace, his power, and our part responding by faith and being used in evangelism and in prayer and so forth. Number four, and I know I don't have this on your handout. You can 
Watch the video and get it later. <laughs> Number four, regarding the present availability of personal salvation righteousness from God. You know, all I would say is now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. That's what he's saying here. You've rejected the Messiah, but the offer still available. And for the Jews to hear the Gentiles got in on it and they didn't, oh, that would be irritating to their arrogance. But it's true. Regarding the present building of Christ's church made up of Jews and Gentiles through faith in Christ minus the law for justification and sanctification, let's embrace our positional unity in Christ without compromising the gospel. And lastly, the future national deliverance of Israel and fulfillment of its biblical covenants. And this is what you're going to hear tomorrow. God has not canceled his promises for ethnic Israel. He's only postponed them. You know why? Because God always keeps his word. And by the way, he's always on time. And I'm not, so let's pray. <laughs> Father, thank you for our time and your word tonight. I know I covered a lot in a short period of time, but I thank you again for this passage of Scripture. May even the handouts be of help as people restudy, reread, rethink this through. But Father, what we have seen tonight is so clear that the law, using the law, which was never designed to means of, be a means of salvation, but perverted by Judaism, is never the way to righteousness. For not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to your mercy, you save us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were willing to come to earth and die for our sins, to pay for them completely, to be raised from the dead, and to offer to us, outside of us and in spite of us, this gift of salvation freely by your grace. Because you paid it all. And it's us for simply for us to receive by faith. And Father, we thank you that you have not only a plan for our lives, you have a plan for the church, and you have a plan for Israel. And you always keep your promises. May we learn to just trust you from day to day. In Jesus' name, amen.